Blog Talk Radio. And you are listening to In the Closet Objectivists, the regular hosts are Corey Baum and Megan Rivens, but they are not here today. I am doing this all by myself, solo. They're not here to hold my hand. And as a consequence of that, I have repeatedly bungled things up today. I was, spo- I was supposed to talk about intellectual property rights, and I will get to that. That's our topic. But I have to begin with a confession. So two hours ago, I gave this whole two-hour monologue, the one I was supposed to give, and by the end of it, I was out of breath, but I was relieved to have gotten it done. I play it back, and Blog Talk Radio tells me nothing was recorded. There's just nothing. <laughs> and that's uh, that's not a happy laugh on my part. That's a morbid laugh. I'm... It's an angry laugh. I'm angry at my own imperial literacy, my own difficulty with blog talk radio. But I do have to confess I wish blog talk radio was more user-friendly. But also I, I'm going to give the same speech I gave two hours ago um, for two hours. And hopefully I'll do it better this time because that's how I roll. So today, uh, Corey and Megan are taking a well-deserved rest, and it's just me. You're stuck with me. So I want to take the time to address a topic that comes up very often, and that is that of intellectual property rights. Objectivists understand that intellectual property rights are very important. They're actually the basis of all property rights because all the creation of all economic value that can be privately owned was created by the, human, the application of the human mind to one's reality. This is not well understood by many people who call themselves defenders of free enterprise, many self-described libertarians. The most notorious opponents of intellectual property rights are those who follow Murray and Rothbard, the self-proclaimed anarchists, those from the Mises Institute. But this type of attitude is even common to a lesser degree at the Reason Foundation and the Keogh Institute, the, um, the Washington, D.C. libertarian think tanks that the Koch brothers have been involved with, at least at one time. There at the, at the Reason Foundation, 
they don't go as far as saying they want to abolish intellectual property rights, they, that they want to abolish patents and copyrights. But they're clearly – the party line is clearly that they want copyrights to be weakened. And pretty much any time um, – pretty much any time someone sues for copyright infringement, the knee-jerk reaction at the recent magazine is to side with the infringer. So I think we have to address this. Because here we find a very odd reversal. Even the most diehard proponents of the regulatory entitlement state, who are very vociferously opposed to laissez-faire, such as Miami Herald columnist Leonard Pitts Jr., at least understand the need for intellectual property rights, specifically patents and copyrights. Trademarks come too, and so do plant variety protections, but today we'll focus on patents and copyrights. And yet, the people who claim to defend free enterprise, who claim to value originality and innovation in a dynamic market environment, self-proclaimed libertarians, the party line is to be very denigrating toward intellectual property rights. And such libertarians spread three big falsehoods. I want to address all three of them. But the last of them, in particular, I think needs to be addressed. I think it's something that, um, in debates with libertarians, objectivists historically have not taken very seriously, but they should. I say this because at the third argument, well, all three arguments, for a long time, um, for a long time, they stumped me, a very charismatic Rothbardian and used them on me, and for years I didn't have an answer. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that the three arguments are not the three main arguments against intellectual property rights are not valid. They're very poor revolts against IPRs. IPR saying for intellectual property rights. But I can see why people are fooled by it. Even people who uh, say they value the free market, I find even many objectivists, even many objectivists who say they're for intellectual property rights. To, to one degree or another, believe in these three falsehoods. Hence, uh, we should clear them up. First, I'll go with, with three, the three falsehoods one by one, and I will knock down each. But the last in particular, I think, has been very troubling to our objectivists. They, I think many objectivists haven't given a, you know, the amount of thought that they should, should. And especially knocking down the final falsehood in particular, is actually very important if objectivists want people to understand the need for recognizing intellectual property rights, specifically patents and copyrights. Okay, so here are the three, first, three falsehoods. Falsehood number one. Intellectual property rights are a claim of ownership over a vague general idea for a whole category of product. That is, if the Wright brothers have a patent on an airplane, then for the next 17 years, no one else can produce units of airplanes unless they get the Wright brothers' permission first. That is, they pay a licensing fee. And as far as many libertarians are concerned, that's extortion. That, that's extortion. Um, the idea is, well, maybe the Wright brothers have a patent on the airplane, but what if I produce my own airplane? with my own private property. I'm not violating their property rights. I'm not stealing anything from them. I haven't damaged any of their stuff. 
They still have their prototype. They have their right flyer. I haven't busted it up. They still have it. I haven't vandalized it. I haven't stolen it. It's, they have it, their own right flyer in the exact same condition where they left it. I'm using my own material to make my own duplicate of the right flyer. So who are they then to sue me and say, I can't put this on the market. I can't sell units of what I, or my duplicates of the right flyer. How, who are they to say, I can't sell duplicates of the right flyer using my own materials unless I pay them a licensing fee? As far as libertarians are concerned, that's extortion. Uh, and hence, hence uh, as far as they're, they're concerned, copyright holders and patent holders are co- uh, banned a cabal, a whole political class of corrupt rent seekers. Not unlike, it's not unlike Chrysler being protected from foreign competition thanks to tariffs being put in place, tariffs for which Chrysler lobbied. So that's first falsehood. So the idea is that patents are a government-enforced monopoly on the whole industry. Falsehood number two is a direct uh, result of this. They say multiple parties working independently of one another, not even knowing about each other, can come up with the exact same invention at the exact same time. But because patents are a monopoly, only one of those parties can uh, can can get the patent. All other parties are legally forbidden producing units from their own original design based on the R&D they did on their own independently, not even knowing about the party they eventually got the patent. And that's totally unfair. And they bring up the example of Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray supposedly coming up with the exact same invention of the telephone on the exact same day. And that's it. Um, so... So uh, what does a defender of patents have to say to that? Finally comes the last falsehood, which is the most complicated and um, the one that I think objectivists need to pay more attention to, and I think they should uh, pay attention to my rebuttal to this. So this is the final falsehood. Private property rights only validly apply to commodities that are scarce. And the only way a commodity can be scarce is if it's tangible, that is, it, it, it consists of matter. It's a solid object or a liquid, or in some cases, even a gas like air, for example. Um, the, the, these things are scarce, meaning they're rival, meaning that there's a, there's a specific number of units of this product on the market at any given time. And one person getting more units at any given time means there are fewer units available for everyone else. Now, I have to clarify the use of the word scarcity here. To say that commodities are scarce in this manner is not um, is not to concede the the idea of Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus that there is a finite number of non-renewable resources. And one like copper, and one day they'll all be depleted, and capitalism will deplete everything, and then we'll all be left starving. So capitalism will destroy itself, and everyone will be poor. To use the word scarcity in the context um, that economists use it in the in one of the uh, concepts I'm talking about is not to concede Reverend Malthus's point. I have to say that because every time I, I debate this idea and use the word scarcity, 
Many objectivists come down and say, why are, you, why are you using that word? You know, the, why are you using that word? Why are you using the word? Isn't this it, 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 some kind of concession to Reverend Malthus and about scarcity as, as if when and, and economics and wealth creation is about creating abundance. It's, it's a default. We start off with nothing and then we create abundance from that nothing. Whereas, uh, if you use the word scarcity, you're, you're implying that the default is abundance, and then we deplete everything, and then the goods we need, land we need, get scarcer and scarcer. No. Okay, that's another debate for another time. For the, topic, for the time being, we're going to use the terms scarce, as economists use it. And as I said before, that's not any concession to Reverend Malthus's point. The point is that at any given time, there is a finite number of units of a specific commodity on the market. Let's say there's a hot toy. Let's say it's December, and the, the hot toy all the kids want is called a widget. Yet there are only 100 um, units of the widget on the market presently. This doesn't mean that more widgets can't be created later. But let's say the company that makes widgets will only start making new units in January. Right now, there are only 100 units of widgets on the market. Well, there were at the start of December, but uh, well, we started shopping late, so now they're only nine, and nine five were purchased by parents who are giving their widgets to their kids on Christmas. There are only five left for sale. There are only five left being sold by vendors. Well, if in that case, vendors can jack up the price, now can't they, because a lot of parents are desperate. If this was before the time of online purchases, you can imagine how this would go. This maybe I'm I live near the store, one of the last few stores that sells a widget. So I I run down there, but another parrot wants it first. So oh, so we both grab onto the box and we're in a tug of war over who gets the box of the widget. Maybe uh, maybe maybe it comes to a fist fight. Maybe blows are thrown. And um, libertarian economists say the problem would be even worse if there were no private property rights, if there was no institutionalization of private property rights. If there was a time when land was not recognized as private property, and that's exactly why hunter-gatherer clans are fighting over land all the time. If a tree, an apple tree with a, let's say there's an apple tree. You know, the apples on the market are all clones of each other because they're all from the same ancestral branch. What happens is people, uh, far, apple farmers will take a branch and graft it onto a tree. And that's why all apples on the market come from branches that were grafted onto trees. And they're all clones of each other. But what if uh, apple trees weren't privately owned and, you know, you and I both want apples. We're both, we're both going to run to the apple tree and try to pick off all the apples, put them in our baskets. Maybe we're going to fight over them. So it's much easier to say libertarian economists if the apple tree itself is privately owned. So they think that private ownership is all, main justification of private ownership is dispute resolution. And they say oh, that only happens with objects that are tangible, that are scarce. So widgets are, are solid, but this can also apply to liquids, such as um, bottled water, uh, Coca-Cola, you know, comes in cans, and in some cases this even applies to air. 
know, air is not very scarce. At least for cavemen, air was not very scarce. Fresh air was not very scarce. You can just breathe in the air. But there comes a problem when there's a lot of air pollution, a lot of factories of pollute with a lot of soot. Air becomes a lot more scarce. Probably you should sue. You should sue the if a factory nearby your home is pulling your air. You should probably sue that factory because um, it's damaging your private property rights, your private ownership over your air. Likewise, air does become a scarce commodity if you're going underwater. If you want to go scuba diving, um, if you don't want to drown, you purchase an air tank, a tank full of air. That, that air would, be scar- would not be scarce if you were just on land and not going underwater. See, so scarce. So libertarians say scarcity only applies private pro- to um, tangible objects, and private ownership is only justified by scarcity. And they say, well, what about ideas? Ideas are not scarce. Just right now, you can, right now, right now, listening to me, you can generate 100 ideas off the top of your head. They pop into your head at no cost. Ideas come cheap. And what is intellectual property rights? Patents and copyrights are claims of ownership over ideas, but ideas are not scarce. They're non-rival. So I'm going to use this example throughout. Um, A movie is is an idea, right? And and especially invention, a schematic for a new machine, that's an idea. And here's the thing. Scarcity applies to tangible objects such as automobiles. What happens if what happens if I steal your car? Then you don't have your car anymore. Likewise, what if I vandalize your car? What if I bust up the windows, let all the air out of the tires, you know, scratch up the paint, uh, cut the brake line? Well, then you can't use the car as you intended anymore. So you, you no longer really have your car. Maybe you have the, the you still have the materials that of which the car was comprised, but it's been degraded. You can no longer use the car, qua car, as you're supposed to use it. See? And another car is not easy to come by, right? There only, there's only a finite number of cars, even if more cars can be manufactured in the future. So that's the problem with... Um, so so you're, you can see how your private property rights are violated if someone damages your car or steals your car. But what if, what if uh, Justine wants to make a commercial motion picture? She wants to make a low-budget movie. It's low-budget. She only spends several thousand dollars on it, but she does want to commercialize it. She wants to recoup the cost of her investment and hopefully um, make money beyond that so she can make a profit, and that profit can be invested in future projects. So, and so she wants to sell this on the Internet. So she puts it on her website says if you pay her twenty dollars, you can download a copy of her movie. Now what if people illegally download they make unauthorized downloads of her movie, not paying Justine at all? Well, Justine still has her movie, doesn't she? If people make copies of her movie unauthorized copies of her movie, she still has it. You see? If I steal your car, you lose your car. But if I make an unauthorized copy of Justine's digital movie, she still has the master copy. She's lost nothing. That's the argument of libertarian economists. And there's so much wrong with that. 
so much wrong with that on multiple levels, so I have to go through all of them. So I'm going to go over the three falsehoods one by one. first two will be relatively quick. The third one is going to take up the bulk of the duration of this podcast. So falsehood number one, again, intellectual property rights are a claim of ownership over a vague general idea for a category of marketed products. A patent granted to the party the government enforced monopoly over the industry. All right, so hypothetically, it goes like this. It's the year 1889, no, sorry, it's the year 1898. A man named Schooley patents the paperclip. He gets a patent on paperclips for 17 years. In the year 1899, William D. Mobook says, but I want to produce units of the paperclip. I'm going to produce units of the paperclip, and I want to do it without Mr. Schooley's permission. I don't want to pay that, that extortion to him. I'm not, I won't let myself be shaken down by, the, by a patent holder. William D. Millbrook produces and sells units of the paperclip. Well, Schooley, when Schooley says, hey, you're supposed to pay me a license, Mr. Millbrook says, nah. So Mr. Schooley sues William D. Millbrook into oblivion. And when Mr. Schooley wins the patent infringement lawsuit, um, Mr. Schooley is able to maintain his monopoly, either... Minister Millbrook um, capitulate to the shakedown and pay a license to Mr. Schooley, or Mr. Schooley remains the exclusive provider, exclusive person in charge of producing units of the paperclip. And the libertarians say, that, that's such a shame. That's such a shame. If, um, if Mr. Schooley didn't have exclusive control over production of units of the paperclip, then people like Mr. Millbrook would be also be producing this with the paper clip and selling their own paper clips. There would be more competition. There would be price competition. The price would go down. Consumers would get a better deal. By contrast, because Mr. Schooley is able to have, have control over the licensing, he can restrict the number of units of paper clips created. He can jack up the price. That's what happens, they say, with uh, zero, zero graphic photocopiers. They're known as the Xerox machine. You know, Xerox had a patent over zero graphic photocopiers. It, it, it held that patent so jealously that the very name of the machine, that people think the name of the company, the name of the brand, is the name of the machine itself. They say, people often wouldn't say, I'm going to photocopy this document. They said, I'm going to Xerox this document. And because Xerox, holding the patent, was able to restrict the quantity of units produced, They've got, got to be so stingy, they actually didn't even sell units of this machine. They leased it. You couldn't even purchase a geographic photocopier. You had to rent it from Xerox and pay a rather exorbitant fee, uh, rent for that. Libertarians say, but what if just about any com- big firm with a lot of capital, any firm that had enough capital to make multiple units of a geographic photocopier, what if they could just pirate the design and not pay Xerox anything? There'd be more zero graphic photocopiers on the market. Probably they could they would be selling them, not leasing them. Prices go down. Xerox would ha- probably have to resort to selling them as well. And isn't that so much better? Okay. So government patents are monopoly right? Wrong. Here's something that libertarians often omit. From the years eighteen sixty seven to nineteen fifty seven, 
there were at least 17 different patents issued on the paperclip. And each time one of these patents was issued, it was in an interval shorter than 17 years. What this means is that each time a patent on a paperclip was issued, it was prior, it was, it was prior to the expiration of the, the patent directly preceding it. Now, why is that? It's because a patent is not a claim of ownership over a general idea. It's not a claim of ownership over a whole category of product. A patent is a claim of ownership over a specific original design. Meaning, if you want to patent something, you have to be specific. You can't just say, well, I'm a science fiction writer, and I have this idea for a science fiction story where people genetically engineer this algae that glows in the dark and it's used for fuel to give you electricity. That, that's not patentable. If you want to patent something like that, you actually have to have a design for it. You have to have a schematic. You have to have, if you file for patent on this, you have to describe how it works. And you need, and usually you need a model. Now, a model in this context does not mean a physical, tangible model, a prototype. When I say model throughout the context of this discussion, I mean you need a detailed description of the, of the device, how it works. Usually you need diagrams to give the patent examiner a clearer idea of what's going on, and it actually has to work. Someone who is in the, the industry that pertains to this new invention has to be able to look at your instructions and from your instructions be able to work the device. This has to be someone who is called, who, who is a skilled in the art. So I'm going to read from U.S. Commercial Code um, subsection 112 on this. It says, what is patentable is not the general idea for a new category of product, but the, quote, written description of the invention and of the manner of and process of making and using it, unquote, that is, quote, in such full, clear, concise, and exact terms as to enable any person skilled in the art to which it pertains or with which it is most nearly connected to make and use, unquote, that invention. That is, if you invent a new sort of furnace for steel making and you want a patent on that, it should be the case where, thanks to your description of it, someone who is in the steel making business should be able to read your instructions and then be able to use your machine. So no, the general idea is not patentable. The reason why there's so many different patents on a paper clip is that, well, paper was paper clip. It's an object that fastens different sheets of paper together. And there's so many different ways this, this can be made. The general idea of an object that fastens papers together is not patented. What is patented has to do with different designs that the, um, these patents have described different materials used to make this. The paper clip comes in different shapes. Not all paper clips came in the exact same shape you're probably thinking of. That's called the gem style paper clip. And also in these patents are different machines that, that are used in different methods of mass-producing paper clips. 
So, so remember the examples I gave of Mr. Scully and Mr. Millbrook? Those are real people. In 1898, Matthew Scully patented his own design for the paperclip. That was patent number 601,384. The very subsequent year, William D. Millbrook obtained his own patent, U.S. patent number 636,272. His was on a machine for producing units of the gem paperclip type of paperclip with which you are most familiar. And no, Matthew Scully getting a patent on paperclip the prior year doesn't void William D. Millbrook's paperclip. There is no monopoly at all. The same thing goes for braziers. You might be surprised to learn, you know, braziers are relatively simple, right? But from the year 1919 to 1957, again, there are multiple patents on the paperclip. I'm sorry, on the brazier. You can find that every time a new patent on the brazier was granted, it was before the previous patent on the brazier had expired. The patent from Mary Jacob Phelps, patent on the brazier from Mary Jacob Phelps, was relatively simple. She had pieces of cloth that she tied together. More uh, the, the Rosenthal's came up with a more sophisticated brazier, the one that had underwire that came in different cup sizes. You know the, one, the idea, the one type of brazier that people are more familiar with today. That came, up with, came from the Rosenthal's. They had their own patents. Mary Jacob Phelps couldn't stop the Rosenthal's from patenting and selling units of their own brassiere. There, there's no monopoly. Now let's move on to also number two. The idea that multiple parties working independently, not even knowing about each other, can arrive at the exact same invention at the exact same time only one of those parties gets the patent, and the party that gets the patent can forbid all the others from making units of their own design. Of course, that's false. Now, an example often given is that supposedly Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray came up with the telephone on the exact same day. That's actually a falsehood. No two um, inventions are exactly alike. What Alexander Graham Bell came up with was an electrical telephone. It converted, it converted, your speech was converted into electrical signal, and on the other hand, it was converted back into intelligible speech. What Elijah Gray came up with was a harmonic multiple telegraph. It could not convert speech. I mean, it sent electrical signals over a wire, it sent, and that could be converted back into sound. It could not be converted back into intelligible speech. What was what an area where Alexander Graham Bell's invention was similar to Elijah Gray's was that Alexander Graham Bell's invention and Elijah Gray's both used principle of variable resistance in an attempt to recreate sound more in order so that sound could be created recreated more accurately when sounds converted into an electrical signal and converted back into sound, employing the principle of variable resistance made the sound on the receiving end a more, a more accurate representation of the sound that was made on the transmitting end. But Elijah Gray's invention was not exactly the same as Alexander Graham Bell's. But there were there was a patent dispute, and that's where I come to the next part. Some, so basically, separate parties can ar arrive at the same general idea at the same time. Not really the same time. They arrive at the same general idea in a duration, in duration that are relatively close proximity to one another. Maybe party one arrives at 
a general idea one day and a few weeks later party two that doesn't even know about party one arrives at the same general idea but the 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 designs themselves that they patent are not exactly the same and that's why these parties end up with with their own patents however the reason why they're patent disputes is that often there's a similarity in the design it's what I call a design overlap and the, often these different parties go to um, hire the lawyers to settle the area that deals with the overlap and this doesn't always go to court the normal the normal way this is resolved is usually is that these parties privately agree to pull their patents in a private trust so here's what happened in the case of the integrated circuit so at Texas Instruments Jack Kilby had an integrated circuit patent and very close to that same time Robert Noyce who would later co-found Intel at Fairchild Semiconductor he had his own patents on the integrated circuit again these were not exactly the same Jack Kilby's patent focused more on more on the integrated circuit itself whereas Robert Noyce focused more on how the integrated circuit was wired with other components in the computer and how it interacted with them but there was an overlap in the both patents so they privately pulled those patents in a single trust what this means is that even if multiple parties come up with the same general idea, maybe they, same, they share the same general idea, but part but separate firms never contributed anything to any R&D, they never did any of their own R&D, never worked on this on their own, those other firms can't just look at these inventions and say, well, we didn't contribute any R&D, but now we're going to duplicate those designs exactly, and we're, we're going to pirate those designs. No, that's not what happens that separate parties come up with the same come up with the same general idea within relatively close temporal proximity to one another is no is nothing that invalidates patents per se and and when people come up with the same general idea at uh, at times they're close to one another they can still respect one another have their own patents um, pull their patents and those parties together can sue infringers who are trying to duplicate their designs when never having contributed to any R&D themselves. Now we move on to the final, the final falsehood. Oh, before that, sorry, before that, I should mention there are two type, two types of patents, utility patents. And design patents. The utility patents protects your specific original design with respect to its functionality, how it works. That is, you've invented a machine, you don't want someone duplicating the machine exactly. A design patent protects your specific original design with respect to its aesthetic qualities, that is, how it looks. For example, if you have a design patent on a fragrance, means uh, the fragrance should not be exactly duplicated. Many pieces of furniture have design patents on them. Charles Eames patented many, had design patents on different furniture designs he had. I'll give a, I'll, I'll give an example that might be more concrete for you. 
George Lucas had a design patent on the Boba Fett action figure. You'll probably know that Boba Fett is a villain that was in Return of the Jedi and The Empire Strikes Back. You know, he had he wore the helmet, he had the funny missile uh, pack jet pack on. So he has a design patent on a toy of Boba Fett. This means that with other part firms cannot, without George Lucas's permission, make their own toy that looks exactly like Boba Fett. If firms want to make toys that look like Boba Fett and then sell them, they should get George Lucas's permission first, and they'll probably have to pay a license to him. Okay. So let's get to the complicated part. Ideas aren't scarce, right? You can come up throw away ideas uh, instantly. And patents are ownership over is ownership over idea, right? Well, we we've already uh, cast down on, on that misconception. But general, we should think of it this way: land is scarce, right? Well, unimproved land per se is actually not. Fifty percent of the human population lives on one percent of all the land on Earth. Ninety percent of the whole human population lives on 10% of all the land. All the land of Antarctica is uninhabited. Why are there housing shortages then? It's because land, per se, is not very inhabitable, at least not if you want to live in an environment where the, the infant mortality rate is lower than 20%. I mean, you could, if you want free land, you could just move to Antarctica but how long would you survive? Would you be able to raise a family there? No, land has to be made suitable for human habitation. And there's a cost. That is what is scarce. And that is created by human effort. Someone has to employ his or her mind to make that land inhabitable for human uh, use. Planting crops, you know, sign on the correct type of crop, Finding crop a crop that's suitable that can be grown in that sort of uh, geographic and geologic environment, irrigating the land, which means installing pipes inside the soil, the ground, pipes that carry water so that those crops can be watered, fertilizing the crops, picking the, the right sort of fertilizer, um, creating a shelter for human use. Are you, going to start, are you going to build a house out of wood? Are you going to use steel? All, you have to make all those decisions. And that requires human effort. That requires, human, that requires a lot of human labor and time, meaning you have to devote hours and hours and hours on improving the land to make it suitable for your use as a homesteader. Hours you could have spent doing something else. Hours you won't get back either. Remember, time is itself is a scarce resource. You only have so much time. And you notice how you also use tangible units of the product. You have to purchase seeds. That seeds are a rival. They are scarce, meaning if you purchase this quantity of seeds, other people don't get the quantity. More seeds can be produced at a later time, but at any given moment, there are only so many seeds available. So 
in fact, you've improved the land and you've made it inhabitable. Notice how when you improve the land, all the materials you use had already existed. The, the materials themselves are not where the economic value comes from, the economic value being what you get out of it. All materials are already there, but you've used your mind to arrange the materials in such a way that there's new value created, value that wasn't there before. There's a net gain in value in the whole economy. That's what I call an emergent property. An emergent property means all these components were already there. And they were already doing what they were doing. But when those components are arranged in a particularly fortuitous fashion, an unprecedented phenomenon occurs, something completely new, and there's a gain in value. For example, billions of years, all the, all the chemicals that go into organisms had already existed on Earth for billions of years before there were any life forms at all. All chemicals were already there, and yet there was no life. Then one day, probably in some deep sea vent, thermal vent, it was really hot, some chemical reaction occurred where the chemicals that were already there were arranged in a, in a particularly fortuitous fashion that created the first proto-microorganisms. What was once living matter, material that was once all non-living matter was arranged in a fortuitous fashion and hence living matter emerged, living organisms emerged from matter that was life emerged from non-life. Something completely unprecedented happened. That's an emergent property. Hence, and when homesteader improves land, entirely new economic value is created, even if the materials were there before the economic, economic value was created. The economic value, the usefulness you get out of it, is new emergent property, new value, a net gain in value. And the same thing occurs with an invention, specifically a practicable design. Um, so, impractical ideas are not here. They're cheap. They're dime a dozen. So I'm going to read from an essay I wrote on this topic. Quote, impractical ideas, ideas for products in which consumers express no interest, are ideas that come cheap. It took me mere seconds to think up the general ideas of glow-in-the-dark sunscreen, and edible toilet seats. One does not invest any quote-unquote scarce resources in tossing around vague ideas for products that will not satisfy marketplace demand. By contrast, designers, which designs which inventors and entrepreneurs seek to patent are practicable design. For the duration of this discussion, the term practicable design refers to an original design for a product that is so practical that if multiple units are produced from this design, parties would willingly pay money in exchange for access to these units. And this is on account of the units produced from this design functioning as intended. And to develop such a practicable design is the opposite of cheap. And as a consequence of the production of a, of a practicable original design being the opposite of cheap, the number of practicable designs available at any given time are themselves finite and limited they're a specific number. There might the number might be greater in the future, but at the moment 
there is a specific number. Hence, they are scarce after all. I'll give the example of um, Chester of Carlson at Xerox, a geographic photocopier. So I'm going to read from an essay on this topic. Why we're on it. So there's so many details, so many details that I can't just go by my outline. Quote, Sarah Chester F. Carlson and the development of the xerographic photocopier was more conventionally known as the Xerox machine. He first came up with the general idea in 1934, working at a law firm. Okay, so keep that in mind. Our starting date is 1934. He found it tedious to transcribe documents by hand and wished there was an effective low-cost method for making clear, legible duplicates of documents. He spent hundreds of dollars on equipment, money he could have instead spent on other amenities, such as better housing, and hours of his life each week. Hours he could have spent on earning money at a second job with steadier prospects for supplementing his income. To run experiments to test his theories on how this device could accomplish its intended task. It was not until 1938 when he finally finished a detailed theoretic model ready for patenting, that is, four years after he got the general idea. This patent was granted in 1940, that is, six years after he got the general idea. Even then, nothing was easy for Carlson. So note that just when you have the, the vague general idea that's not patentable, you have to flush it out. You have to give it detail. The detailed model that actually works after years of testing, that's what you patent. That is what is enforced by patents. Even then, after 1940, after the patent was granted, even then, nothing was easy for Carlson. He approached a multitude of capital-heavy corporations with his proposal to license his technology to them, hoping they would develop units of this device. Those firms included General Electric, IBM, RCA, and Remington Rand. Those 20 big firms all rejected Carlson's pitch. It was not due to a lack of capital on their part. They had enough capital to produce multiple units of Carlson's design. Rather, for them, the issue was that they judged that there would not be enough marketplace demand for this product to justify allocating their capital for this purpose. Carlson's fortunate break came in 1944, when Carlson was finally able to license the invention to the Battelle Memorial Institute. In 1947, Battelle turned over this technology to Joseph Wilson's Haloid Corporation, a company whose name Wilson would eventually change to Xerox. It was not until 1949 that Xerox had developed a model it felt confident putting on the market, the Xerox Model A. Ah, ah, so finally, finally, 1949, the Xerox Model A, finally they make a profit, they make money on this, right? Finally they recoup the costs, right? Wrong. This ended up a commercial flop. Upon a cost-benefit analysis, the target market for this product, corporate offices, law firms, and schools, decided that this machine was not even worth renting. Joseph Wilson had to start over when searching for a method of producing a model that would satisfy marketplace demand adequately while remaining cost-effective for Xerox manufacture. This led to the firm unveiling the Xerox 914 in the year 1959. This was the first model of a xerographic photocopier to generate a profit for any party. This was the first model of a zero graphic. Carlson's original patent 
It already expired before Xerox could profit from geographic photocopying. But fortunately for Carlson and Xerox, Joseph Wilson was able to obtain patents on other design aspects on the Xerox 914 that the company was, had developed during its own R&D process. In the 1960s, royalty payments had made Carlson one of the richest people in the country. Well learned. Now examine those durations. It took Carlson four years to develop a model that he could patent. The duration between Carlson's, init Carlson's initial inspiration and the introduction to any geographic photocopier in any market was a whopping 15 years. And the time it took between Carlson's generation of the idea and the moment that this idea first generated a profit for any party was 25 years. What happened in all those years? What happens is research and development and experimentation. In the four years it took Carlson to make his original vague general idea into a patentable model, Carlson had to purchase his own equipment to test his models to determine whether they functioned as he planned. Note that the equipment consisted of tangible goods, scarce resources, resources consisting of matter that Carlson had expended, used up, and depreciated. The same grueling process of R&D and experimentation continued in the dozen years between the moment Joseph Wilson first gained access to this technology and the moment that anyone profited from it. Xerox spent thousands of dollars of its own money employing engineers and technicians to run tests on how they could minimize costs while producing units of this technology that were able to satisfy marketplace demand. To run such experiments, they too had to acquire tangible equipment coming in a finite number of units. So I'm going to read from my conclusion here, not the conclusion of the whole discussion because there's more. Yes, your patent is on something that is intangible, a model describing precisely in detail how a product is to be structured physically and how it is to function. But by the same token, you would not even be able to come up with an intangible model if not for your using up tangible goods consisting in forms of matter that do come in finite units. Those are units that are, more often than not, relatively perishable. So again, yeah, so I can talk about edible toilet seats and I can talk about a glow-in-the-dark sunscreen. So I'm going, to, I'm going to quote myself again, you know, because uh, this is something that Friedrich August von Hayek doesn't understand. From also from the Chicago School, F.A. Hayek agrees with Arnold Plant. So I say, quote, there is no scarcity of practical ideas that, if implemented, would not, would not satisfy any marketplace demand. But practicable designs that, when implemented, do satisfy marketplace demand, are scarce. And they are scarce as a consequence of the fact that in order to come up with a practical design, units from which will satisfy marketplace demand and profit the producer of those units, those are scarce as a consequence of, coming, of being the result of 
person putting in hours or months or weeks or years of work in which this person uses up units of resources that are tangible and scarce. And contrary to the assumptions of Arnold Plant and F.A. Hayek, that scarcity was present prior to the passage of any laws concerning patents or copyrights. So what, who, who is this Arnold Plant? So I'm going to address this whole thing about scarcity applying, scarcity supposedly not applying to intellectual property. You know, Timothy Sanderfer is widely beloved by objectivists. He's a lawyer, and he has been published multiple times in the Objective Standard magazine. And objectivists just love him. But he's really, really degrades intellectual property rights. He doesn't understand them, and he delivers a straw man. To quote Timothy Sanderfer, quote, in the case of tangible property, real or personal, dot, 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 I added an ellipse, the property is naturally exclusive, meaning that if I have it, you simply cannot. If I take it, you no longer have it. You have been deceased. Intellectual, intellectual property, however, is not like this. I can take it from you. Here, Timothy Sanderfer puts take in sarcastic scare quotes. I can take intellectual property from you, and yet you still have it. Unquote. Here's the, again, here's the example. If I steal your car, you no longer have your car. But what if Justine produces her own low-budget movie, puts it on the internet, and wants to charge people $20 for download? If I make an unauthorized copy of her movie, she still has the original. She still has the master copy. She has, she's lost nothing, right? All that whole argument goes back to the University of Chicago economist Arnold Plant. Now I'm going to quote him. Quote, it is a peculiarity of property rights and patents and copyrights that they do not arise out of scarcity of the objects which become appropriated. They are not a consequence of scarcity. They are a deliberate creation of statute law. And whereas the generation, general institution of private property makes for the preservation of scarce goods. Property rights and patents and copyrights make possible the creation of a scarcity of a product appropriated which could not otherwise be maintained, unquote. In other words, what he's saying is that there's no pre-existing scarcity in ideas, right? There's no scarcity there. However, when patents and copyrights are enforced, that imposes an artificial scarcity that, was, that would otherwise not be there. So let's go back to... Um, Let's go back to Chester Carlson and the idea of people of other firms pirating his geographic photocopier. He wanted to license this technology to General Electric, IBM, RCA, and Remington Rand. Those firms themselves got rich in the first place because they had their own patents. IBM became a big company because of Herman Holder's patent on the tabulating machine, a precursor to the digital computer. General Electric was started by Thomas Edison. You know, he, he was a long-time record holder in patents. He patented his light bulb, patented his electric generator, all those things. But let's say for argument's sake that uh, patents are voided. Yeah, they're not enforced anymore. 
at least the uh, Chester of Carlson's patents on a zero-gravity photocopier will not be enforced. Neither will the, the subsequent patents that Xerox Corporation and, and Joseph Wilson got you know, concerning the, the model that finally worked, the Xerox 914. What if just about any firm could pirate the Xerox 914, pay no money to Xerox, not help, not recompense Xerox, not help Xerox recoup any of the costs that Xerox and Chester of Carlson incurred in the process of making the Xerox 914 a possibility in the first place. So what if uh, firms could just pirate the design? It would still uh, cost the firms because it would still cost them in producing units of their own geographic photocopier, their own Xerox 914, but um, they wouldn't have to pay for any of the R&D. Right. So they pay nothing to Chester of Carlson, they pay nothing to Xerox to pirate Xerox's design. Plus, they, help, they don't help uh, Chester of Carlson or Xerox recoup any of the costs that, that they incurred in making the Xerox 914 a reality. And definitely, Chester of Carlson and Xerox um, are not going to profit this profit they're not going to get, profit that they would have used to invest in further R&D to create even more inventions. You may recall that Xerox, uh, you, you, when Xerox profited a lot, you put the money back in R&D and helped Douglas Engelbart produce the, the graphical user interface for computers and the mouse and all of those things. Yeah, but what happens when RCA and General Electric and IBM Remington Rand can pirate copies of the zero-graphic photocopier. Well, that means more units of zero-graphic photocopier will be on the market immediately, right? So remember that Xerox was so stingy with units of its own machine, it wouldn't even sell units of the machine. You had to rent it from Xerox, and that cost a lot of money. Well, Arnold Plant will say, well, this is good now because this is good now because more firms will be putting zero-graphic photocopiers on the market. There's more competition. Price will go down. Probably Xerox can't afford to be so stingy. Now it will have to sell units of the machine rather than just lease them. So that's a net benefit to consumers, right? No, it's not. That's really short-sighted. This will actually create a greater shortage in the long run, a shortage of practicable designs. Because remember that as a consequence of the fact that a practicable design that will actually satisfy marketplace demand and generate profit, such a practicable design is scarce as a consequence of all the hours of work, all the hard work and all the time and effort and all the R&D, which uses up tangible units of natural resources, all that going into the process of creating a practicable original design, all those things are scarce. And as a consequence, the practical original design itself is scarce. And this means there's actually a limited quantity of original designs on the market. There's a li already a li limited quantity of practical original designs, a limited supply of practical original designs. That's the supply side. So there was a pre-existing scarcity long before patents would be recognized. In fact, the 
scarcity will be exacerbated if patents go unenforced. So let's say all plants and Timothy, Timothy Sanford get their way. And Xerox and Chester Carlson could not enforce their patents. So at first, things are looking good. All these other firms with lots of capital, like General Electric and IBM, pirate the design. They make, they, they make their own units of the exact same machine, put it on the market, prices goes down, big whoop, right? Well, Chester Carlson and, and Joseph Wilson will say, well, what was that all for? We, we spent 25 years on this and get nothing for it. We spent 25 years on uh, and thousands of dollars on this and get nothing for it. How how satisfied do you think those uh, they're going to be? Do, how, do you think they want to come up with the next big invention? Do you think they want to put R&D into the graphical user interface and the, the mouse or the computer? I mean, this really the same thing applies to um, real estate. Remember John Locke's homesteading principle, a homesteader took land that was previously uninhabitable and actually not very valuable to humans and made it valuable by improving it, making it suitable for human use. Land, per se, is not scarce. However, the resources and time that goes, that goes into making a plot of land inhabitable, those things are scarce. And as a consequence, inhabitable land itself is scarce. That's the supply side. And yet, and notice how um, the fact that now that land is inhabitable is also the, the demand side. There's no demand. There's no demand. There's hardly any demand for land, a plot of land in, in, in Antarctica. There's lots of land available for land in Antarctica, right? That's the supply side. But also, there's no demand for it because it's not desirable. People are not willing and able, willing to shell out money, plot of land, unimproved land in, dark, in Antarctica, if it will remain unimproved. So, but yet, if our John Lockean homesteader uh, creates the supply of inhabitable land, there will necessarily be demand for it because people are willing it, want it. People want it. They see the value in it. They're willing and able to shell out money for that land. That's why people purchase land that you know, improves the land. But what if, with the socialists got their way and said, no, 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 no. You know, it's the case that uh, all the land is already here. You didn't create the land. And therefore, you got to meet the land for everybody. Therefore, everyone should get an equal share of all the land, regardless of how much anyone did to improve the land, make it inhabitable. Right? Because that's what socialists say. They say, well, God made all the land. It was already here. No one created the land. So who are, you, who are you to claim ownership over this plot of land? You didn't create the land. Therefore, everyone should get an equal share, regardless of uh, what anyone does to improve it. And, of course, the fact of the matter is, the issue is not whether or not the land was created. The issue is whether value was created. The value of the land was created. The, land, the value in the land is the emergent property, the net gain in utility, the net increase in the wealth in the economy that was created by the homesteader make, inputting into inputting time and labor and tangible resources into making the land valuable for human use. That was created by the homesteader. And that's why it is the homesteader's private property. But with what socialists got their way and said, okay, everyone gets an equal share in land, 
regardless of what anyone does to improve the land, lots of people are going to go on the, the homesteaders' private land and spoil it and spoil on it and degrade it. And the private homesteader will say, oh, well, why should I improve the land when this happens to me, when that's my reward? And likewise, any other prospective homesteader, anyone who else who was, who was considering potentially to improve his or her own plot of land, those same people are going to say, well, <clears throat> well, the same thing that happened to that other homesteader is going to happen to me. All these free wires are going to come onto my land and use it when they contribute nothing to improving the land. Hence, land won't get improved. And there will be a greater shortage. There will be much, the shortage in inhabitable land will be much greater. And Murray Rothbard recognized this. He, whole, he wrote this whole argument about why land has to be privately owned. Murray Rothbard's followers understand this. And yet, they neglect to, to consider how the value in the land actually came not from the material objects. It came from the application of the human mind. Someone had to think to make the land valuable. Someone had to do all that planning. And they neglect to consider how this is applicable to practical original designs that are patented. I, that's where Murray Rothbard and his followers and even Chicago School economists like Arnold Plant neglected to do their own intellectual labor. What's going to happen when if, if Xerox's patents are nullified? If, if Chester Carlson's patent and Joseph Wilson's patent on the Xerox 94, what if that was all nullified? Well, at first, those other firms pirate the design, make their own units, price goes down, and they pay nothing to Chester Carlson and Joseph Wilson. They recoup none of their costs, get no profit, not even any revenue. You get nothing back from their R&D. They say, well, why, why bother? Without, what was all that for? Why should I in, make another invention? And, that, and all other inventors will look at this and they say, yeah, that applies to me too. Why should I spend all these years and time and effort on producing this new practical original design if that will get pilfered too and I'm not going to be rewarded for it? The number of original designs will decrease. The number of original designs, other, otherwise practical original designs that otherwise would exist in the future won't be there. There will be much fewer that's the shortage that will be exacerbated. The number of practicable original designs will be much scarcer. And this time, the word scarce in, the, in that Malthusian context does apply. number of practicable original designs in the future will be scarce in that Malthusian sense, in the sense of rapidly depleting and will soon be gone and leaving us with nothing in poverty. That's what Arnold Plant overlooked. And that brings, and that's why it makes me so angry that Frederick August von Hayek, so is this intellectual laziness on F.A. Hayek's part. He just took Arnold Plant's argument for granted and said, quote, it is not obvious that dot, 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 ellipse, that forced scarcity is the most effective way to stimulate the human creative process, unquote. They're saying that the patent imposes a scarcity on the number of units of zeographic photocopiers created for 17 years. The fact of the matter is that recognition recognition of intellectual property rights 
sends a signal to the market that will make more practical original designs that will increase quantity and supply in the future. The same way as private ownership over improved land, it sends a signal to the market that will make more improved land available in the future. If someone, a homesteader who improves his land, if he's recognized as a private owner and he can um, have tenants rent the land or if he can sell the land to someone else for a high price, recoup, not only recouping his costs and breaking even, but also profiting, that sends a signal to other potential homesteaders. They say, wow, I can profit that way too. So they get their own plots and improve their own plots of land, make more land available, more land available and inhabitable, and there's more competition and the price goes down. And no, and actually the truth is that carrying capacity of land can be improved because if there's a scarcity of even improved land, land rents will go up, land prices will go up, and engineers will say, okay, we have to find a way to get more people onto more land. For instance, in the 1800s, there was, for most of human history, there was a time when, um, there was a time when a building could only be so many stories high, like three stories. If you wanted to build a really tall structure, it would have to be pyramid-shaped, like mountain-shaped, because you, that, that, because buildings were supported by their walls. So if you wanted a building supported by its walls and you wanted it to be tall, you, you would have to make it in a way that was uh, conformed to gravity, hence mountain-shaped, hence pyramid-shaped. And the problem with that is that when we do that, if you want the structure to stand taller, you make it, the walls have to be thicker, and the higher... And as you go up higher and higher into the structure, you know, there's less space because you're getting closer to the peak of the pyramid. So that wasn't very suitable for uh, human habitation. And so in the 1800s, land, inhabit, even inhabitable land was getting scarce. Um, it's scarce. In the 1800s, land rents were going up, land prices were going up. So William LeGen, uh, the, the architect, William LeBaron Jennings, said, I have to find a way to fit more people on the same quantity of land. And he looked at his wife's birdcage, and he thought, you know, the little birdcage is like a skeleton. A building itself has skeleton. The building is not supported by the walls on the outside. You know, same way an insect is supported by, the structure of an insect is supported by its exoskeleton. What if, what if a building was like a, a vertebrate, like a human. It had a skeleton on the inside. So he said, let's build a skeleton for the building made out of steel girders. And when that happens, the building can get much taller. Hence, William Jabaron Jenny invented the skyscraper. And yes, uh, the pioneers and skyscrapers got patents, well-deserved. And now more people can fit on the same quantity of land as before because Buildings get higher. Air conditioning plays a role too. Insulation, all those things. So uh, no Malthusians, you don't win there. And the same principle with real estate and improved land applies to to um, inventions. So first, Wright brothers patent a wing warping. So I I, should, uh, I explained this in the previous time, but I think I forgot this time around, so I'll explain it. Not, so when Jack Northrop uh, patented his flying wing design of airplanes, it's not as if 
Jack Northup got a whole monopoly on airplanes for 17 years because no one actually had patents on just the airplane. Not even the Wright brothers had patents on, on quote, the airplane, qua airplane. This is because uh, in the early days of aviation, there are three components needed for an airplane. First, it needed propulsion. That is, a heavier-than-air flying machine needs a means of getting off the ground. Second, it needed lift, meaning once the machine was off the ground, it had to stay in the air and not just immediately plummet back down. Now, many people who are working on, air, on uh, trying to invent the airplane already succeeded with lift, propulsion and lift, but they still had problems with steering. Once it's, you get it in the air and once it stays aloft in the air, how do you get in the direction you want it to go? That is what the Wright brothers worked on. That's what they patented. They patented wing warping, meaning the wings of the airplane were flexible. By warping, by bending the wings in a particular fashion, they could, put, they could, make the, they could maneuver the airplane into going into a particular direction. And they patented that. But it's not as if they then had a monopoly on the, whole, the general idea of airplanes. Their rival was Glenn Curtis, and Glenn Curtis tried to challenge the patent, and thankfully, he failed. But what happened was, Glenn Curtis said, okay, they have their patent. What if I tried something different? So he said, what if the, air, the wings of my airplane are, are stable? They're stuck in the same place overall, but they have fins on them called ailerons. The fins can change direction. So... So even though the wings themselves are not as flexible as the Wright Brothers, uh, as the wings on the Wright Brothers flyer, this wing, these wings are hard and solid, but they have these fins on them that change direction. Those are called ailerons. So Glenn Curtis patented that, and so the Wright, brother, the Wright Brothers actually used ailerons too, but their patent did not put emphasis on that. Their patent put emphasis on the wing warping. Glenn Curtis's patent was different because it put emphasis on the aileron. So even before Wright Brothers' patents expired, Glenn Curtis was able to patent his own innovation and sell units of his own airplane. Okay, so let's go back to the zoographic photocopier. So Arnold Plant and F.A. Hayek are all, and Tiffany C. Sanderford are all miserable that Chester F. Carlson and Joseph Wilson got exclusive control over the zoographic photocopier that they designed and that would not exist if not for them. And other people can't pirate it. But what happens is Chester F. Carlson became one of the richest people in the United States. Other would-be inventors look at that and they say, wow, that sends a signal to them. They say, wow, I too can patent. I too can patent my own invention. And that spurs more innovation. Likewise, in the case of the Wright brothers, Wright brothers got... Uh, were very successful with their Wright Flyer. Um, Wilbur Wright died very early, but by the time Orville Wright, the other brother, died, he had a net worth of $2 million. And that sent a signal to other inventors, such as Glenn Curtis. They thought, wow, I too can get rich with my own patents. That's what spurred Glenn Curtis to proceed with the, um, this patent on the aileron even after, even after he couldn't nullify the Wright Brothers' patents on wing warping. And we're all better off for it. So uh, Glenn Curtis went ahead with the aileron. His commercial success, again, sent signals to other innovators. 
that would all dry up if if people could just pirate pirate the Wright Brothers design, people could just pirate geographic photocopier, all the other would-be inventors out there would say, eh, forget it. That's the scarcity you should be worried about. Hence, enforcement of patent rights is not the artificial and scarcity imposed on the market. Rather, there is a pre-existing scarcity of practicable original designs naturally as a consequence of the fact that all these resources have to be inputted into creating a supply of practical original designs, and the artificial scarcity would be created if the enforcement of patents and copyrights was nullified. So I, w- I want to clear up this misconception that um, Tom Palmer of the Key Institute spreads, and I think this time I can actually explain it clearer than than um, I did. When the previous time I gave, I said all this and thought I was recording. So Tom Palmer gives a straw man argument. He says that the argument I just gave, well, he, he's not referring to me personally. He's saying, well, anyone who makes this kind of argument is uh, is um is 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 um, relying upon Karl Marx's labor theory of value, which is that the value of a, the value of a commodity is the direct consequence of the hard work put into it. And that's all. So it goes like this. Karl Marx says, well, you know, factory workers um, worked really hard when they were using this factory equipment. They were using the factory equipment and uh, they were working really hard. So uh, because they put all this hard work into it, the, the, the factory workers own the equipment, and they own. They, they should have 100% over uh, the 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 um pro, the units produced from the equipment, and uh, yeah, so the, the employee should get all should get all the own all the units produced from the equipment, and the equipment itself, and all all the investors uh, investors uh, they didn't directly put hard work into it. They so uh, they yeah they don't they don't they don't, they don't truly own it. You know, because uh, Carl, continuing Karl Marx's line of thinking, well, because John Locke said that uh, the homesteader rightfully owns the land he improves as a consequence of him mixing the soil with it, because he directly, you know, mixed, you know, directly worked the soil with his bare hands and got the sands dirty, and so uh, he worked hard. So uh, now it's his. Well, the, the factory workers work hard, and work hard, and they're they're directly handling the machines. They directly handle the units. So uh, they own the machines. They own the units produced. Yeah, yeah. So Tom Palmer turns around and says, well, so uh, these uh, Rothbardian libertarians, the first time I made this argument about uh, the, the inputs, they said, well, you're making the labor theory of value argument. You think that uh, the inventor and worked really hard, so uh, yeah, he owns invention, and he should be able to use government force to stop other people from uh, pirating his design. You, you think the artist worked really hard on her artwork so uh, that's that's direct that's the direct and sole reason why she owns her artwork and should be able to use government force to stop people from pirating her artwork. Uh, no, that's a straw man. I here's how to phrase it. And I think I can phrase it better now than I did the previous time I gave a speech. The value of a practicable design in machinery or artwork is oh, is an 
insofar as it is a consequence, uh, consequence of hard work, it's only an indirect consequence. Rather, the, the value and need for um, recognized original practical designs in machinery and artwork, the, the, the direct source of its economic value and the direct source of why it should be considered private property the direct is the supply is that it's in, in, it is, it's twofold. It comes in a limited supply and a limited quantity, and yet and yet it's in high demand. And here's how I put it. So that's the, the supply and demand aspect is actually the direct source. Now, uh, for example, um, excuse me. Let's say I'm a factory owner, and I produce the the widgets, right? Well, labor is the manual labor is not the only input. Also, the planning, the planning is an input. The capital is an input. I mean, what happens if there's no entrepreneur? The entrepreneur is the one who gives the entrepreneur, the manager is the one who gives instructions on the manual to the manual laborers on how they're supposed to operate the equipment. If the laborers are not given proper instruction on how to operate the equipment. Well, they're not going to produce any units. So the, their labor goes to waste. The factory equipment goes to waste. And the natural resources that are supposed to be inputted in the production of units, um, it goes to waste too. So the entrepreneurship, the, the management, the planning, the, the intellectual labor, intellectual property really, is an essential input. input. And the, the, the factory workers are already paid for their inputs. They're already paid for their contribution. It is true that you own your time and your labor. That's what the factory workers are paid for. The, the business owner paid the, the workers for their time and labor already. And the pro, and also the factory uh, owner has to pay. So the RP has to pay off his creditors. The first line of creditors are the employees who are owed money for their time and labor. So when when Units are sold, and the factory owner gets revenue. First, the factory owner pays the employees. That's the first set of creditors. Factory owner also has to pay for the natural resources and for the equipment. And the money left over, the profit, that is the consumer's payment to the entrepreneur for the value that he provided or, or she provided, which is all the planning, and organizing, organizing, and managing the nat- all those other inputs. Managing and those other inputs in the factory equipment, natural resources, the raw materials, and the labor, managing all those cohesively so that actual units of product are created. And so you notice how the entrepreneur does expect to be uh, recompensed for, he wants his costs, costs covered, and he wants units to be more, he wants to make a profit, right? So he wants the price to exceed the cost. And you can say in that sense, the price is is indirectly affected by the inputs, by all the hard work put into producing the units. The price is indirect the price and value of the unit of the commodity is indirectly affected by all the hard work and labor put into it. But that's not the direct uh, direct source of the value or price of a commodity. 
the direct value and source of the commodity has to do with demand and supply. It has to do with demand and supply meets. It has to do with the fact that there's a, a limited quantity and limited supply of units of the product on the market. And secondly, it has to do with how much demand demand um, there is for the unit, meaning how much customers see value in getting or in using up the units. But we see how the supply is actually supply side is a consequent is something is affected, influenced by all the costs of the inputs, and in turn, the the demand side, the value that the customers see in units of the product is actually influenced by the supply of units of the product. And here's what I mean by that. There's only so many, when it comes to units of a product, there's only so many, so many units of the product on the market, right, and it's tangible. But it's not just because it's tangible. In fact, it's not even directly because the reason why there's a limited quantity and limited supply of units of a product on the market is actually not a direct function of the fact that it's tangible. It's a direct consequence of the fact that all the resources that were inputted into the creation of units were scarce. And that includes intangible units, units, time and labor. Time and labor are intangible units. That they're, those, are, those are intangible. You can't touch them. They're not made out of matter, but they are scarce. And, they are, and, they are, and because they're scarce, people are compensed for them. So, so the supply side, the fact that there's a limited quantity of units on the market is actually a consequence of the fact that there are only um, so many scarce resources were inputted into the production of those units. And I will say the demand, demand, but of course that's not all. The price is also affected by demand. How much are customers willing to pay for those units? But you see, the unit, the demand itself is influenced by the supply. By that, I mean when customers decide whether they want to purchase those units, they evaluate the units. They evaluate the unit's features. They say, is this worth purchasing? Do I actually want this? Am I willing, not only am I, am I able to purchase the units at this price, but am I willing to purchase units at that price? And whether or not the customers are willing to purchase units at that price is a consequence of the features actually in attributes of the of the product itself whether or not i want to purchase a, this unit you know whether or not i have demand for this unit is affected by whether the unit itself the supply side has the attributes that i judge to be good and desirable and the the, the value and price of the unit is thus a direct consequence of the confluence of demand and supply. However, however, the confluence of demand and supply itself is affected by the units put into the creation of the product, meaning the demand side is influenced by, my demand for the units of the product is influenced by the supply of the product, meaning the supply of units meaning I have demand for these units because of the actual attributes that are built into the units themselves. As I have demand for the units. My demand for the units, my willingness to purchase them, is affected by the attributes 
of the units themselves, which is the supply. And the fact that there's a supply at all, and the fact that there's not an unlimited supply also, is influenced by the fact that tangible units were tangible resources, and, and intangible resources too, which are, which are also scarce, were inputted into the creation of those units. I hope you could follow that. And that's what the case with land. That's the case with land. The reason why um, land should be private property and the reason why it's valuable and why there's a price on it is not a direct consequence of the fact that uh, some homesteader worked hard to make it inhabitable. However, a homesteader working hard on it indirectly influences is an indirect influence on the value on the value and price of the land. But the direct influence on the price and value of the land is the confluence of demand and supply. And the demand is influenced by the supply and the supply is influenced by the hard work and inputs that were put into the process of making that land inhabitable and thus desirable. And so the same thing goes with um, practical, practicable designs, such as um, uh, zero-graphic photocopiers. Where does the value of the zero-graphic photocopier come from? Well, the direct source of that, the direct source of that, is uh, where demand supply meet. The direct cause of the price of 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 obtaining access to zero-graphic photocopier, whether it means purchasing a unit or just renting one, that is directly influenced by the confluence of demand and supply. But the, de but the demand side is influenced by the supply side. Why do I find, why do I want to make zero graphic full copies? It's because the machine, it's because of attribute, I, because when I look at the machine, that's influenced by the fact that the machine itself already has the features that make it do what I want. What I want is the demand side. The supply side is the fact that the machine is able to do what I want. And why? So, but but so still so, so. The value of the invention, the direct source of the value, is the confluence of demand and supply. However, it, that is indirectly affected by all the inputs. Influenced by the inputs put into uh, the creation of that invention, because um, as I said before, it's not just a matter of the units themselves. It's a fact that there needs to be set instructions for producing the best possible units. Remember how I said labor itself is worth factory workers' labor itself. The fact that they their muscle labor, their muscle ability that by itself is useless. It, it doesn't make any products unless they're given proper instruction from the entrepreneur. By the same token, by the same token, a firm like RCA or General Electric or Xerox or, no, or IBM, them having all the capital, all the capital and the labor and even entrepreneurs and managers having all that by itself, if they want to make a, put a new, great new product in high demand, High demand. If you want to put a, new, a great new product in high demand on the market, having great workers, 
loss of capital and machinery and loss of money and loss of cash and loss of raw materials and even the most brilliant managers and entrepreneurs in the world, having all that is still useless until the practical new design comes in. Practical new design is the set of instructions. Just as the entrepreneur, just as entrepreneur's management is a set of instructions to the laborers that gives value to the labor and the production of units, the practicable original design that is patented is a set of instructions to the entrepreneur on how he or she is to put a, a new type of unit on the market. That's new value created by the creator of the practical original design. It did not even come from the manager or the entrepreneur. It came from the inventor. It, that is value created by the, invent, by the entrepreneur only insofar as the, invent, as the entrepreneur is an inventor, him or herself. And only insofar as the, as the entrepreneur listens to, him, listens, listens to the inventor and recompenses the inventor for what the inventor put in. So when I say that, so so I talked about how I talked about how um, people should have paid licensing fees to Chester F. Carlson and Joseph Wilson and Xerox for for uh, the zero graphic photocopier. If all those other firms want to produce their own um, own Xerox model nine one fours. They should pay licensing fees to Chester of Carlson and Xerox. But the value of the geographic photocopier design did not come directly from all the hard work Chester of Carlson put in. I'm not saying that. The value of design, the design comes directly from where demand and supply meet, meaning these firms and ultimately people who make photocopies you see the value in the geographic photocopier because it does what they want. See, they're wanting it is the demand side, and that's why they're willing to pay out big bus, big bus, uh, shell out big money for it. But that is a that is a that is a result of the supply, insofar as the units of geographic photocopiers are actually able to function as they're supposed to. They they do what they're intended to do, they, say what they, they do what they, the creators say they're going to do. And that value is not just in the units themselves. The units are able to do what they're able to do exactly. It's not just because of the manual labor put in. It's not just because uh, the entrepreneur you know, is, a really good human, is a really good human resources manager in managing the workers who created the units. No, all the value comes primarily from the seven instructions on how to put together the units. And the seven instructions is a, is a practicable original design that came from the inventor, the patent holder. And, and, and such practical original designs, such good sets of instructions on how to produce quality new units, those are scarce. That's the supply side. It's not just that the quantity of units, it's not just that there's a limit, a finite number in the quantity of units. It's not just that there's finitude in the supply of units. There's, fi finit there's, a, there's, a, there's 
a finite number of practicable original designs, which are sets of instructions for producing high-quality units. There's finitude in the supply of practical original designs that are the sets of instructions for producing high-quality units that the market has not yet seen. And the reason for the finitude is the fact that there's all this hard work that has to be put into it, all this time, you know, hours, weeks, months, years, all that, and also experimentation, which also requires the um, purchasing of equipment to run tests. So insofar as I'm saying that all the hard work and stuff and, and scarce resources, insofar as I'm saying all the hard work and scarce resources be, so is being inputted into the creation of original practical new designs, um, insofar as I'm saying all that stuff, the value, the economic value that is the practical original design and the, price, the value of the licensing fee that has to be paid for it, insofar as I'm saying that those inputs affect the value, the, those inputs and resources are indirect. Not direct. The direct source of that value is the influence of demand and supply. So that's why what I'm saying is very different from Karl Marx. Karl Marx's labor theory of value assumes that the value of a product and the price of a product comes directly directly from all the hard work put into it. And uh, you know, similar to the, the false idea that the cost is the main determinant of the price or value of a, of a product. And of course, it's not true. The, the demand side also has to be satisfied. Demand is the willingness and ability of consumers to pay for units of something, pay for something, anything. And it's not just that. So it's not just that the product exists. If people work really hard in producing some unit, and um, no, no, but, but it serves no useful, it serves no good use. Nobody wants it. Then uh, it's, it's not valuable. The price should be zero, even if people uh, spent a lot of money and hard work on creating it. Same thing with inventions. If someone spent put a lot of hard work and um, hard work into an invention and and spent a lot of money on it, um, it it's still not going and gets a patent on it. It's still not going to be valuable if it doesn't actually uh, satisfy marketplace demand. If it doesn't actually you know, address human desire, the human wants. Like I could, if I worked really hard on inventing an edible toilet seat, or if I worked really hard on glow-in-the-dark sunscreen, and I spent a lot of time and labor and hours on this, and I patented it, well, it doesn't mean it's valuable, because hardly anyone wants it, except maybe as a novelty or a gag gift. And even if people bought that as a novel, bought going to the dark sunscreen as a novelty or a gag gift, I probably wouldn't be able to recoup all my costs. So the, the value directly comes from the confluence of demand and supply, meaning people have to want it. But the so that that's the problem with Karl Marx. Karl Marx thinks that the value of any product on the market is a d directly 
a function of the manual labor put into it or the cost, even if those units really don't satisfy any human desire. My argument recognizes that the value of any practicable original design that's patented or copyright, that comes from its ability to satisfy human desires, comes from people being willing and able to pay for it. But we should not forget the, um, the price and its value also comes from the supply side. People are willing and able to pay, people, people being able to pay for something like an invention, they're being able to pay for it is uh, all up to them. It's whether they have a supply of something, it's whether they can sell something. But whether they want it isn't all up to them. It also depends on the supplier. Whether I want the want to access a geographic photocopier in particular is not just my desire. It's, I mean, it's not just because I want to have duplicates of a document. It's also because the geographic photocopier is able to give me that. It's able to make duplicates of, of the document. It's able to give me what I want. It's able to do what I want. That's the supply side. That's value comes from there too. And the machine being able to do that and give me what I want, give me its ability to satisfy my, my satisfy my pre-existing want, is a consequence of all that hard work that went into the creation of that practicable original design. So I hope you can see how I'm not, unlike Karl Marx, I'm not saying that the hard work that goes into the creation of a practicable original design is the direct source of its value. No. Insofar as it's the source of the, of, uh, the practical, practical original design's value, that's an indirect source. The direct source remains the fact that it's able to satisfy consumer demand, that it is something that supplies the satisfaction of consumer demand. So and let's no, never again hear the straw man from uh, Lafayette libertarians like Sam R., etc., that the argument I gave is uh, a restatement of the Marxist labor theory of value. No. I am not saying that the value of the practical original design comes directly from all the hard work put into it. What I am saying is this value comes from the fact that I want, that people want units produced from this practical, practicable original design, and the practicable original design enables that demand to be satisfied. And then I, I that's why I explain to people the, the, the supply side. Why is this in such on the supply side? Why are um, such practical, practicable original designs in such limited quantity? Why is there such a limited supply of them? That part is directly a result of the fact that all these inputs, all this hard work, all these tangible resources have to be invested in the creation of the practicable original design. So I hope that wasn't too complicated. Now, there's some other points I want to address. We're almost done. This, of course, applies to artwork. Not just uh, machines like the Zero Graphical Copier. Let's say Justine wants to make her own 
commercial motion picture, and she's going to do it on a low budget. It only spends several thousand dollars, but she wants it to be commercial. She wants to make money from it. She wants people to enjoy it. So let's say she makes a movie set in a haunted house. That requires inputs that are scarce, not just her time and labor. You know, when she spends time and labor on this, she can't spend all that time and labor on other things that might make that might be a surer, surer bet, might be a surer investment, something guaranteed, very guaranteed to make her money. She, uh, it's not just that. She has to either build her own set, build her own haunted house, which, uh, which requires inputting of tangible resources that are depreciated, or she has to rent a set. And even if she does that, that means someone else cannot use the set. That's, you know, that's what Timothy Sanderford seems not to grasp. And when an artist, his or her work, commercially available on the Internet or anywhere else on any market, there is an implicit contractual understanding there. Inventor puts his or her work, or artist puts his or her work on the market on the implicit contractual condition that those who make direct use and access, who directly access units, of the creation will pay the creator the price he or she asks for it. And it's very simple. Um, if you, if you, um, let's say I, I want to hire you to do some service for me. Maybe you're a plumber and I hire you to fix my pipes. Maybe you're an electrician. I hire you to fix my wires. Maybe you're a gardener, and I I I, I pay you to, you know, pull all, all the weeds out of my garden. So let's say you do the work, and I skip on paying you. Have you lost something? Yeah, stole the value of the time and labor you put in. Time and labor you could have expended on something else, and for which you would have been recompensed. The same applies. If Justine puts her movie on the internet, on the market, and wants to charge $20 uh, if for anyone who wants to access it. And let's say uh, I, I make an unauthorized duplicate of the movie and watch it. So Timothy Sanderford says, well, she still has master copy, so nothing got stolen. Yes, something did get stolen. When I make an unauthorized copy of Justine's movie, I'm stealing the value of the, resource, the scarce resources that Justine inputted into making that machine commercially, I'm sorry, that art, that most picture commercially available to anyone in the first place. That's what gets stolen. That, to use the word Timothy Sanifer used, that's what get, gets deceased. If Justine puts her movie on the market on the implicit contractual agreement, that she be recompensed for having made the movie a reality in the first place, if I make an unauthorized copy of it, what she is deceased of is the value of the inputs that Justine put into the creation and marketing of that artwork and for which she expected to be recompensed, remunerated. So I want to address this final, this final, um, this final um, 
straw man. So for since really the 1800s, really, opponents of intellectual property rights have made a straw man comparing patents to a tariffs. It, it's legitimate to say tariffs and duties are monopolistic. They are a form of government-enforced monopoly. If Chrysler resents people purchasing imported Japanese cars like Honda's, it's actually pronounced Honda, not Honda. If Chrysler resents people importing Honda's or Toyota's, Chrysler can say, oh, oh you know, I want to go out of business. I want to continue charging American consumers high prices for uh, relatively low-quality Chrysler's. So the government should put impose import quotas and or tariffs against Toyotas and Hondas so that the price is driven up to such a point where American consumers will be manipulated into, purchase, into purchasing Chrysler instead. So that is a monopoly. But then um, people, uh, straw manners will say, well, the same thing happens with patents. Patents are a government-enforced monopoly. Because uh, if, if Chester F. Carlson can use his patent to stop um, General Electric from selling pirated units of Chester F. Carlson's design, then uh, that restricts competition. Uh, it restricts General Electric and IBM from competing against Xerox. And then Xerox can have its monopoly and, and charge exorbitant prices for access to uh, photocopies. That's why... Uh, I can't even purchase a unit of a Xerox machine. That's why I have to rent it. It's monopolistic. Okay, so here's the difference. And I'm going to read, uh, read uh, what I wrote on this from FA2. Oh, first I should say this argument is actually over hundreds of years old. It was made by a member of parliament, John Lewis Ricardo. He was a nephew to the free trade economist David Ricardo. That's another reason why people will conflate uh, the nullification of patents with a free trade and why they conflate patents with tariffs. So I'm going to quote a University of Chicago historian Adrian Johns. He phrases that John Lewis Ricardo maintained that patents are, quote, quoting Adrian Johns, the equivalent in effect of the Navigation Acts or the Corn Laws themselves, unquote. So now I'm going to read what I wrote as a rebuttal. It is true that, in both examples, filmmaker Justine and protectionist Chrysler are trying to protect their investments. Moreover, both Justine and Chrysler expect to be recompensed financially by customers who consume their respective products. The difference is this. If the absence of tariff enforcement allows Chrysler to go out of business, it is because no one bothered to consume any of Chrysler's products in the first place. No one benefited from Chrysler's products, and that is why no one sent money to Chrysler. By contrast, if the absence of copyright enforcement causes Justine to go out of business, it was because many people enjoyed Justine's movies, but no one paid Justine the money they owed her for it. Those who conflate IP with protectionism ignore the fact that protectionism is about manipulating customers into purchasing and inferior units and inferior substitutes they do not value and do not want to consume. Whereas IP calls upon customers to pay the money they already owe to the party whose contents those customers do value and already did consume. Unquote. 
so uh, we can look at it this way. Suppose uh, you have an apple orchard, a, a huge apple orchard, really, a whole whole acres of apple orchards. So I trespass, I sneak onto your land and pluck just a few apples and put it in my basket, maybe 12 apples, and then I'm about, I'm about to leave. And you catch me, and you say, oh, I'm going to call the police on you, you trespass. So I reproach you for your self-righteousness. I point out, you still have an entire orchard full of apples. I just took a basket's worth. You still have the trees and branches you grafted onto them. You can always grow more apples. Uh, um, that defensive retort ignores all the inputs for which you had to pay when growing your apples. And I think uh, even Timothy Sandifer and um, Murray Rothbard and Tom Palmer and all plant would understand what, what's wrong with that rationalization. Well, those guys should consider that likewise, those who deny that the pirating of, of IP does harm are people who are just as easily and conveniently ignoring all the scarce inputs for which the inventor had to pay for in the effort to produce the IP. Those scarce resources, the fact that those scarce resources had to be inputted into the creation of that practicable original design is what renders the number of practicable original designs on the market at any given moment finite. It's what makes practicable, practicable original designs scarce as well. And that's not the direct source of the value. The direct source of the value of the practical original design is that it actually does what it's supposed to do and the fact that it does what it's supposed to do satisfies a pre-existing human desire that was already there. That the fact that you already have this desire that needs to be satisfied and the fact that units producing the design are able to satisfy that, that desire in supply, that's where the value comes from and also from the fact that not only from that the fact that such units are in are in limited supply and quantity, but also that practical original designs in which those units are produced are also in limited quantity and limited supply. However, that's a direct source. But indirectly, the fact that there's a limited quantity and limited supply of practical original designs is the result of the fact that they are the result of inputting of scarce resources. So I say, because because inputting because the inputs, the scarce resources that go into the production of practicable original designs are scarce, the number of practicable original designs for which consumer demand will actually be satisfied is scarce as well. So I say, we owe it to those who produce these designs that we recognize that they rightfully exercise legal control over the new value they have created. Those who profess to appreciate the originality that arises from the dynamism of free enterprise should understand that most of all. Thank you very much. Mahalo.